We turn now to our scripture for the sermon this morning as we continue our study of Genesis, coming nearer and nearer to the end of the book. We now come to chapter 47, verses 13 through 26, as we pick up where we left off recently. Genesis 47, verses 13 through 26, this is the word of God, as he gave to Moses to write infallibly by the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, his very word. And so as we pick up with the account after Jacob has blessed Pharaoh and Joseph has situated his family in the land of Goshen, we read, again, starting at Genesis 47, verse 13, the inspired and therefore the infallible word of God. Now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread. And we in our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for for every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them, therefore they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food for those of your households, and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. He blessed its reading, its exposition, and its hearing. Well, after telling us of Jacob's blessing Pharaoh, 
Moses writes in today's passage of one way we might see in which that blessing bore fruit, namely the strengthening of Pharaoh's power and position in the land of Egypt. In the deeds of Joseph, we can see an example of the principles Paul set forth in Romans 13 that we read earlier, that that we are to be subject to the governing authorities. But I also want to sound a note of caution in regard to that when we consider the consequences of what Joseph accomplished here. The end result of Joseph's actions, though, will be the Egypt that we know from later history. If you've studied any of ancient Egyptian history, particularly after this period, uh, we see pharaohs holding almost absolute power in the land, uh, owning all of the land, pretty much, except what belonged to the temples, what belonged to the priests of the various gods of Egypt. The later pharaohs were considered sovereign over the very lives, even the very bodies of their subjects uh, who worked the land, which was considered to be pharaohs, keeping four-fifths of the produce for food and seed and paying one-fifth, so 20% of a tax to the pharaoh. Now, we note that uh, that is not an ideal situation from our perspective, but this is all in God's sovereign plan for the future of Israel. Our applications particularly will be this morning, number one, be subject to the governing authorities with this caveat, except when they command what God has forbidden or forbid what God has commanded. Number two, be wise in your dealings with the civil government. We are told to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. We're not told to render unto Caesar more than what is Caesar's. Be cautious about granting expansion of power to the civil magistrate if you have any say in the matter. As we noted in Sabbath school this morning, when you give power to people in government, they rarely give it up. You might think of the the tale of Cincinnatus, who was a, a Roman who was made dictator during the time of a crisis, and he did such a good job in fighting off the enemies and preserving uh, the city of Rome that they wanted to make him dictator for life, and instead he said, nope, and went home. He, uh, the story goes, left his plow in the field when the messengers came so that he would uh, could go and save Rome from this crisis, and he went back and got behind the plow Uh, One wonders what happened to the oxen or whatever were pulling that plow during that time. But uh, he went back, got behind the plow, and picked up where he left off. And for that kind of attitude, that's why George Washington has been called the American Cincinnatus, because he also relinquished power when it was offered to him for life. That is rare in history. If you have a say in the matter, be very cautious about the expansion of power of the civil magistrate. And the third application will be trust the Lord to do his goodwill in all circumstances. We might make mistakes in who we choose to be our leaders and how much power we allot to them. We may have very evil leaders. While we should certainly work against wickedness, we can also trust that God is doing his goodwill even through the worst 
of leaders in the world. Jacob and his sons, other than Joseph and their families, had been settled in the land of Goshen. Uh, and this was, of course, according to what we've seen before. It was Joseph's plan that they would be settled in that land, which was excellent for keeping livestock, and Joseph provided for them. That was two years into the famine, we were told. Uh, the Lord had revealed that this famine would last for seven years, so there were still five years more to go. Whatever private stores of grain people might have had would have in those intervening years run out. Moses tells us now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Now you'll notice that Egypt and Canaan are specifically mentioned there. Uh, earlier statements suggested the famine was possibly uh, impacting the entire inhabited earth. Indeed, Egypt, Egyptian sources, as we note, especially if we uh, take into account uh, that we might need to revise the traditional chronology for Egypt, and when we do revise that, it looks like the Egyptian sources are talking about this very same period when they indicate that the Nile did not flood for seven years. Uh, that would mean that the, the monsoon rains that normally come to Ethiopia and Central Africa that feed the Nile and cause its annual flooding didn't happen. Now, that's a long way from the land of Canaan. Statements we've seen in Genesis about the conditions in Canaan also have hinted that there was a drought there. So it's reasonable to assume that this famine was probably caused by a very widespread drought. So why would Moses specifically mention Egypt and Canaan in this verse then? Well, a couple of reasons are likely. One is that Jacob's household was from Canaan and they are now living in Egypt. And the reason they're living in Egypt is because the famine was severe in Canaan. That's what brought them there. Its continuation will keep them in the land of Goshen. And then secondly, it's thought by many that Canaan was probably considered a dependency of Egypt at this time. As you'll notice, that uh, that's where everyone's coming. People may be coming from much farther uh, on the earth to, to uh, buy grain in Egypt, but certainly they're coming from Canaan to the extent that we're told here in this passage that all of the money not only has run out in Egypt, but in Canaan, because they're coming to Egypt to buy grain. But Egypt was the great power in the region and probably exercising some authority in the land of Canaan. Moses tells us in verse 14, And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. We might ask, well, why make the Egyptians buy the grain? Why not just give it back to them? Wasn't it their tax revenue in the first place? It was essentially taken from these very people who were getting it back. So why not simply just redistribute it? Why not simply put everyone on the government dole, in other words? Well, J.G. Voss has a reasonable speculation on this. He writes, it would seem that Joseph's program of requiring something in exchange for the food issued enabled the Egyptians to 
preserve their morale and self-respect better than if the food had been issued as an absolute free grant with no strings attached. And we think of that especially when we think of what we know of Near Eastern culture. Now, a lot has changed in the intervening millennia since then, but cultures in that part of the world we have known for a very long time have been awfully honor-bound. And people are not inclined to feel honorable when they're getting something for nothing. Joseph's program provides for the people while preserving their dignity and their self-respect, their sense of responsibility. I'm not entitled to something for nothing. It avoids building that mentality of entitlement in which people believe they should be given a free living by others. At the same time, Joseph's policies are strengthening Pharaoh's position. In this we can see uh, another way in which Joseph is a type, is a symbol or a prefiguring of Jesus Christ. All authority belongs to Christ, and he grants authority to earthly governments. As he told Pontius Pilate in John 19.11, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. In Romans 13.1, we read earlier this morning, Paul says, there is no authority except from God, And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now at the same time, though Joseph prefigures Christ, he is still a mere man. He's subject to the ruling authority of Pharaoh. So he serves him to the best of his abilities. He is Pharaoh's second in command, and it's his job to strengthen Pharaoh's position, and he does a really great job of that. Uh, If you and I were living in Egypt at the time, we might think he did too good a job at that. Uh, Peter says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king, or that could be translated as emperor, as supreme, or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. And Paul writes in Romans 13, as we saw earlier, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, for those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Now we need to note that sometimes what is called by some resisting authority is actually... Uh, adhering to a proper authority. Uh, It's often said, for example, that the American Revolution was a rebellion against the king and the government of the United Kingdom. But no, it wasn't purely that. There were legitimate colonial governments that uh, the people were subject to, and those legitimate colonial governments were telling the parliament, you don't have the right to usurp our authority and tax these people. Uh, So Uh, This is why so many covenanters were perfectly fine uh, with the the American Revolution, because they did not see it 
as a resistance to authority. They saw it as one legitimate authority protecting its people against the abuse of authority by others. But in the Bible, there is a serious caveat, very big caveat, uh, to this admonition that we are to be subject to the governing authorities. We find it in Acts 4 and 5 through the apostles' examples. Acts 4, verses 19 through 20, Peter and John say to the council of elders in Jerusalem who have forbidden them to preach in the name of Christ. They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. When the governing authorities who are subject to Christ forbid us from doing what Christ clearly commands, well, we listen to Christ and not to them. Acts 5.29, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. We are to obey the governing authorities unless they are commanding us to disobey God or they're forbidding us from obeying God. God commands us to do something and they're saying, You can't do that. Well, we have to say, well, no, that's not your place to forbid that and just do what God commands. We're, they, dis, they command us to do something which is unrighteous according to God's word. No, we say you have no authority to command us to do such a thing. Otherwise, even if you think a policy is totally foolish, if you're not sinning by obeying, we're commanded by God to obey insofar as we are capable without violating his law. You have the right to voice your grievances, to campaign for changes of laws and policies that you dislike, but you do not have an excuse from God to disobey just whatever regulations you happen not to like or not to approve of. Again, we need to see that they are in opposition to God's law before we could flout them. Remember, Paul says we do this for conscience' sake. We're not doing it because we necessarily like the rules or like the people who are making the rules. Peter says we do this for the Lord's sake. Earthly rulers should be able to see from your behavior that Christians make good citizens. This was... One of the great arguments against Christianity in the early Roman Empire, or in the early era of the, of the Christian church, that many were saying that Christians were bad citizens, mainly because we refused to worship the uh, gods of the Roman state. And they thought that was going to bring the wrath of Jupiter and Juno and all of their gods upon the Roman Empire, because there was this growing block of people who refused to worship them. And early Christian apologists like uh, Justin Martyr would make uh, particular arguments that no, being a good Christian makes you a better citizen. It makes you a better subject. It makes you uh, a better neighbor. And so magistrates should rejoice to have more Christians under their authority. Jeremiah 29.7 says, Seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. That's talking about Babylon. 
that great enemy city to God's people. The Jews in the Babylonian captivity were commanded to seek what was good for Babylon while they were there. Now, of course, things that Babylon wanted to institute, policies they had, particularly their paganism, was not good for Babylon. And so uh, the people of God were not commanded to cooperate with false religion or the wicked policies of the kings of Babylon, but they were to pray for its good and seek its peace. Likewise, it should be apparent that Christians seek what is good for the city, for the state, for the nations in which we live. Joseph sought what was good for the government that he was working under. Think more about how your actions reflect on Christ than about preserving your own sense of personal rights and comforts. Now that said, it is perfectly appropriate for Christians to defend themselves and others against injustice. And so when there is abuse of power, we do not have to submit to that. If we see that according to God's word and not just our own feelings and opinions, uh, that power is being abused, your response to it should show that you obey God first above men. Joseph seeks to serve Pharaoh well. He's laboring for the good of the civilization and the government of which he is a part by God's providence to which he is subject. First, he enriched Pharaoh monetarily. Verse 14 says, And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So enriches him monetarily, then he enriches Pharaoh with livestock. As verses 15 through 17 tell us, So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle, the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. And finally, then the people surrendered their very selves, their land and their bodies. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from our Lord that our money is gone My Lord also has our herds and livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread. And we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other. Joseph even moved people into cities for better management, apparently, and better distribution of the food. Only the temples, only the priests retained their lands. As verse 22 says, only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh. So they were already being supported by Pharaoh, so they didn't have to sell their land. They ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them, therefore they did not sell their lands. Lastly, we see that Joseph strengthened Pharaoh by establishing a system of taxation. 
As we see starting in verse 23, then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look here as seed for you. So this must be coming closer to the end of the famine. And you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your households, and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which he did, which did not become Pharaoh's. As Paul says in Romans 13, 6 and 7, For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, that is the civil magistrates are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Notice that the people do not resent Joseph for this. It would be very easy to. In verse 25, they say, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. However, the Pharaoh might have benefited from this. Joseph did not corruptly enrich himself. That's a part of a good lesson for those who would seek to be in civil government. The end result of Joseph's policies is the Egypt we know from history for centuries hereafter. Pharaoh has nearly absolute authority over the people. Again, we would not consider this to be ideal. It's perfectly fine if we had an infallible man, like Jesus, uh, ruling over us. Uh, But it's pretty hard to give that much power, and usually unwise to give that much power, to a fallible man. Pharaoh has nearly absolute authority over the people in his land. He is sovereign over the economy, the livestock, even the bodies of his subjects, and none of them technically are considered even to own the land that they live on and work. Only the priests of the false gods of Egypt held land and possessed much personal freedom. We should note that that wasn't by Joseph's machination there. He wasn't seeking to strengthen uh, paganism. It was the Pharaoh who was already supporting the priests so that they didn't need to sell their lands. Now, we should recognize this was an extraordinary circumstance. And we should sound, it's proper for me to sound a note of caution from this. This strengthening of Pharaoh's power in Egypt set up the situation that several generations later, we will see a future Pharaoh having the power to oppress Israel greatly. Had the Pharaoh's position not been so strengthened, he couldn't have done that. Now, on the other hand, we know that that was all in God's sovereign plan. So the Lord will sovereignly use this as part of his plan, but humanly speaking, you could argue that it's rather unwise to give that much power to one individual or one institution. Whatever you render to a ruler that you think today is wise and good can be wielded in the future by a foolish or wicked ruler. And if history teaches us anything, it teaches us that we have more foolish and wicked rulers than wise and good ones. But we can see that all of this was under the Lord's guiding hand. And even when we have foolish and wicked rulers, we know 
that this is under God's guiding hand. And so you and I can take comfort in that. He will use what Joseph has accomplished here later on to demonstrate that Israel's exodus from Egypt will not be by the kindness of a strong Pharaoh or by the inability of a weak one. It'll be by the Lord's direct and mighty intervention alone. And that would not have been shown if the Pharaoh was not so strengthened by Joseph. For abusing the authority that Joseph had gained for the throne, future Pharaohs will oppress Israel. And despite everything they do, Israel will nevertheless prosper and go free. Well, our applications from today's lesson. Number one, be subject to the governing authorities. Obey them. Let them see that being a Christian makes you a good citizen, except when they command you to do what God forbids. Actually, you're being a bad citizen if you obey an unlawful command. We are to obey and honor those in authority, except when they command us to do what God forbids, or when they forbid you to do what God commands. Seek what is good for them, even the ones you don't like. It's very easy for us in today's climate uh, not to, uh, to want to be helpful to the government, particularly when people we didn't vote for are in power. But we should seek what is good for them. For in truth, honestly, whatever is good for those in authority over us, ultimately good to hear, I'm not just saying whatever they want, You don't have to give them everything they want. But what is ultimately good for them is ultimately good for all of us. Give appropriate honor to them. There are many people understandably frustrated with the policies of our current president. And they've taken up chanting foul things at sporting events about our president. Or they've found a way around the foul language, so they can make it on television uh, because of an interesting and amusing mistake or cover-up that was made, depending on who you ask, uh, by a reporter who thought that the people shouting expletives about the the president were saying, let's go Brandon, uh, to the guy who had just won a race. Well, God knows what you mean when you say that, when you shout those things. And it is not honoring However legitimate your frustration might be, the Lord commands that we honor, not curse, those who are in authority. So give honor. It's the time of year to note, pay taxes. But number two, be wise in your dealings with the civil government. Yes, be subject to the governing authorities. And yes, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But you don't have to render unto Caesar things that aren't Caesar's. Power that you surrender to the civil magistrate today will probably never be relinquished. And however wisely or righteously you think a current president or governor or other in authority might use that power, a future one could easily use it corruptly, wickedly, unwisely. And third, even in the midst of being ruled by those who are unwise or unrighteous, or those who are wise and righteous. Above all, we can trust that God is doing His good will in all circumstances. So trust God. Trust the Lord to do His good will, even in adverse circumstances. 
even that which is foolish or wicked today, can be used by God and will be used by God to fulfill his good purposes. Let's pray. Lord our God, we do thank you that you have given us governments on earth for common good, for order in societies, that we do not have to live merely by the principle that might makes right, or a survival of the fittest, or whatever law of the jungle that we would live by, but we have governments to secure us. We know that some are better than others, but we would ask that you would help us in our individual situations to honor those in authority, to submit to them for your sake, give us wisdom that we might understand when it is right to resist authority, for they would be resisting you. Give us fortitude to do so when commanded to do what you forbid or forbidden from doing what you command. But keep us trusting in you through whatever circumstances to work out your good purposes, whether it is through a wise or through a foolish leader. For we pray in the name of the one who is the most wise and the perfect king in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.